The Michael Duke Show. I have two guns, one for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my new friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be infringed. Firearms. From my cold, dead hands. Friday. It's my rifle, it's my gun, it's for fire, it's for Firearms Friday. Oh yeah, Firearms Friday. It is that one day a week where we get a chance to sound off on issues related to the Second Amendment and so much more. Welcome to the program. Thanks for coming in and joining us. How how are you doing? Are you are you ready? Are you ready already for another great day in uh, in radio excellent mediocrity? I mean, whatever adequacy. You fill in the blank. Whatever it is, that's what we're here for. Welcome back to the program, and thanks for coming in and joining us. Uh, it is the Michael Duke Show. On today's program, we got a full, full boat, full boat of guests. We're going to start off in. Uh, we're going to start off here in hour one with just a few headlines, and then we're going to dive into it with our friend Dr. John Lott who is the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. And we're going to talk with him about uh, constitutional carry. And I also want to give him a chance to sound off. He recently just um, put together some some forthcoming research on uh, election fraud as well, voter fraud. Uh, He's been doing... uh, um, he's been doing some research on this, and uh, his latest report has been accepted at the ac- uh, at the academic der- uh, journal Public Choice, um, and it's a study uh, of three tests measuring voter fraud uh, in the United States. And so we can talk with him about that as well. But we're going to focus on constitutional carry here at the beginning of the program with him, and then we'll finish up. In hour two, we'll be talking with... Um, uh, Jacob Sullum from Reason Magazine. Uh, he also wrote an article recently talking specifically about right to carry and how handgun permits actually transform a right into a privilege. And um, and it goes beyond the measurable impact, how loosening those uh, restrictions goes beyond the impact of uh, uh, of public safety. And it goes back into more of the whole rights issue as well. So Jacob Sullum is going to be joining us this morning uh, on the program as well to discuss that. And then we will finish things up <clears throat> with Willie, Willie Waffle from WaffleMovies.com. So it's going to be good stuff. All right. Well, uh, so uh, that's uh, that's the story. I'm sticking to it. That's what we're going to be diving into this morning. So we've got a lot of stuff 
lined up for you as well. Don't forget that you can always uh, follow us along uh, in the simulcast every morning. If you'd like to participate with a bunch of like-minded folks out there, uh, we've got the whole, um, you know, all the six o'clock club members are out here at uh, bright and early at the crack of dawn. They're on the Facebook uh, page with us at facebook.com slash Michael Duke show. Uh, we also broadcast or simulcast it rather on uh, YouTube and Twitch all at the same time. So, Love to have you. Uh, love to have you come on board and join us there as well in any one of those locations, and we will chit chat with you uh, throughout the show. And I'll take your. I mean, I'll take calls and questions and comments in the chat room as well. Uh, and we might even have some time for gun Q and A today. As wow, I just looked up at the phone system to see what was going on, and I've had somebody on hold for eleven minutes. Show hasn't even been going for eleven minutes. Somebody apparently wanted to really talk to us this morning. So I guess um, in light of that, I'll take a phone call and then we'll see what uh, what headlines we can hit before we have to move over to Dr. John Lott. How about that? Uh, so I guess we'll go to the phones. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Yeah, Michael, this is uh, Brady from Las Vegas. Hey, Brady, what's on your mind? Hey, um, I have a kind of a, I'm kind of like in a conundrum. I can't figure out where to classify this. Uh, now that they found out yesterday that the Russian government, when they went into the Ukraine, um, how do we classify a drone loaded with bioweapons used by Ukraine to bomb Donbass region and Russia, like the Moscow area? That's the news that's coming out. How are we going to classify Hunter Biden's bioweapons that are loaded and delivered by a drone? I don't know. I hadn't heard about this uh, report um, uh, from before. What? Where's the? Uh, where's the? Where's the backing that they were using bioweapons uh, in in Donbass? I have the actual Department of Defense papers stamped, notarized. Also, Department of Universe, uh, the Medical uh, University of Ukraine that does all the health studies. Mm -hmm. uh, they had thirty. 33 billion in uh, bioweapons research that was funded by the Department of Defense. That's just coming out. And the reason why Vlad went into the Ukraine, it, yes, it was a denazify, de demilitarized, but they wanted them bioweapons out because they had been using them against the Russian people. They were designing a bioweapon that would kill Russians and Slavic people, and they were testing them out also on the Ukrainian military. <clears throat> a couple of them things got out, killed hundreds of people over there. It's, it was squashed by the media, of course. Mm, but okay. the re real reason we are in Ukraine is because of the bioweapon research that we've been doing since 2005. Okay. Um, I, I, you have, if you have proof that, uh, if you have proof, Brady, that they were using those weapons uh, with drones uh, against the people of Donbass, uh, I mean, I'd love to see it. If you've got a DOD file that talks about it, uh, email it to me, me at michaeldukeshow.com. Um, but I mean, I've, it, and I, there have been acknowledgments that they have had weapons or, or research facilities or weapons, whichever, I don't know which word they used, uh, in the Ukraine. But again, I'm not sure that that's justification for a full on invasion. Uh, but yeah, if you've got that, send it out to me via email. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to see it. So thanks for, uh, Thanks for calling in. Sorry, I didn't know you were there on hold for that long, so I apologize. 
All right, um, <clears throat> let's uh, let's go over to some of the headlines here and start off with uh, some of the stories that are going on around the country, and um, you know some of the some of the stories uh, that uh, may affect you uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, guns and gun rights and everything else. A couple interesting things happening, um, you know, gun gun grabber. When everything looks, when all you have is a hammer. Every problem looks like a nail, right? That's the that's the old ax. That's the old axiom, um, and uh, it's certainly true for uh, anti-gun folks. When they are vehemently anti-gun, no matter what happens, every problem looks like a gun control problem that should have gun control applied to it. Even when you've come face to face with the reality that gun control doesn't work, and that we may need to rethink our, you know, we may need to rethink what we're doing. Enter into the scene Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanton of a Democrat from uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, she uh, was carjacked in broad daylight a few months ago in Philadelphia and appears not to have learned any kind of lesson from being a victim of the crime. Now, you probably heard Philadelphia has been in the news recently because they have had a huge surge in violent crime. Uh, and in fact, they have had uh, just in the uh, just in the last year, they have had a record number of homicides, 529 homicides recorded. That was that was like a 40, 30 or 40 percent increase over the year before. And this year is on pace to be even worse than that. So Philadelphia is kind of like the Mogadishu, so to speak, of um, of America. But you would think that after being carjacked, she may want to have some things, you know, maybe changed or tune or or turns out the the lesson that she learned from her carjacking wasn't that we needed to dive deep into the gun laws and how ineffective they are and how those laws aren't preventing teenagers from getting guns. It was that the ATF is not doing enough to harass normal, average, everyday businesses like FFLs. Uh, on Monday, she fired off a letter to the acting director of the ATF complaining about the drop in inspections of FFLs, federally firearms licensees, right? So that's gun dealers, that she's complaining about these drop-offs of inspections in 2022. Like, she wants to know why the inspections uh, dropped and declined in 2022 and that there were an extremely low number of revocations or denials of FFLs in in uh in this thing so i mean first and foremost hello covid why was the entire federal government in fact there are still people i know that work for the government that still have not returned to in-person work because that's you know that's what they're doing but the the whole country was shut down they were there all the agencies were working rem remotely they were uh, they were ordered to avoid in-person contact as much as possible you want agents walking into the gun store and doing all that i mean the, you know this is why this is why but her reasoning was well you know crimes come from multiple sources but a clear way to cut off the supply of illegal guns is for ffls to do all they can to prevent guns from being acquired by straw purchasers and gun traffickers while shutting down the rogue gun dealers who skirt the law well great except for you can't always tell i mean the without the ffls atf would have a hard time trying to identify who straw purchasers are but i mean they're doing their best i mean this is again the whole problem of i mean this woman was carjacked right 
And I didn't see anybody following up on her teenage carjackers who were aged, by the way, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 19. That was the age of all of her carjacking friends. Now, nobody in that group is lawfully and legally allowed to have a firearm. But this is, I mean, this is, this is the thing that she focuses on, is the legal purchasing of I mean, you just can't fix this kind of stupid. You can't fix it. In another story out of Philadelphia, um, there was a shooting at a corner store uh, down near Temple University the yesterday, day before. And it was originally believed that a store employee or an owner had fired the shots at the would-be robber. It turns out that it was actually the customer who was inside the store after he apparently got pistol whipped by the uh by the uh, uh the the robber the officials say a male suspect pulled a gun and tried to rob the store that's when a customer inside of the store reportedly shot the suspect twice in the abdomen uh they took him to the hospital he later died no no uh no uh um, charges are being filed two men apparently strolled into the store broad daylight 12:30 on a Wednesday afternoon and approached a 23-year-old man who was picking up, uh, waiting to pick up food. According to the police, one of the suspects struck the 23-year-old in the head with the butt of the gun, and that's when he began to fight back. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty clear-cut case of self-defense. I mean, although they've got a really progressive DA down there in uh, in Philadelphia, and maybe he'll try and make something out of this. I don't know. But this comes just a, a week before that. Another would-be robber in Philadelphia was shot by the manager of a Dollar General store after he threatened to kill employees uh, with what he claimed was a gun. Um, that guy also got killed. Uh, so, I mean, you know, this is what you're getting. You're getting people taking their own, you know, taking uh, charge of their own defense and you're seeing permits and usages surge down there because this is what happens when you get this off on crime. This is what happens when you don't, you know, when you blame the tool instead of the uh, person who's wielding it. I mean, these, this is the whole thing is crazy, crazy, crazy. Anyway, um, <clears throat> good for good. You know, it's only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun. Good guy with a gun. That's pretty much the answer to that. All right. Uh, we're coming up on the break and we're going to have to dive into this here in just a moment with Dr. John Lott. We want to talk about his latest uh, his latest publications, uh, including uh, the discussion uh, on um Excuse me, a constitutional carry, not concealed carry, constitutional carry. He's got some research that he's published as well. And uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about his his voter fraud uh, uh, research. So that's all coming up. The Michael Duke Show continues. You're all for common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We'll be back with more right after this. light, our guide, and our trusted friend.
Okay, we're in the break right now. Um, we've got... Uh, sorry, I was looking at uh, Drudge for a second. Um, all right, we're going to uh, continue on here. We're going to call up uh, Dr. John Lott, get him on the horn again. we got somebody else in the ch in the the um, on the phones. So I suppose we'll clear out these phone lines real quick to, just to make sure. And maybe I'll turn the phones off until uh, we get closer. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Hi, Mike. Jeff from Homer. Glad hey. I caught you in the break. Yeah, what's up, uh, Jeff? I just wanted to say something about the, the guns you're talking about. You know, the, the southern border down there, there's, there's more than just drugs and people coming across. There's thousands of people not getting caught that don't want to get caught. And they're coming into this country. There's thousands coming in that are coming in this country that are unchecked, no background check, don't know who they are. A lot of men, you know, all of, all the kids and women are being raped and killed. They're doing something with them. And the uh, the ghost guns are coming in here, the ones, they're getting them in here easier now, the ones they build down in the Philippines with no serial numbers on them, okay? And they bring them in here, they go where they want with them, they put their own serial numbers, and they keep track of them so that once, once they're caught with that gun, they don't buy that gun again. It's, it's an amazing thing going on, and you don't hear one word about it because there's nobody checking it. The Border Patrol's been put down. ICE has been put down. Everybody, it's incredible what those Democrats are doing. And that lady you was talking about, she knows about that stuff, too. That's all in their reports. But they're suppressing all that information, like every bit of it, because they want people coming in here shooting people so they can take our guns. That's part of their, that's part of their scam. The more, more gun violence they have, the more reason they have to talk about it. Right, right. So... That's that's just that's just something that that's kind of hidden, and 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 I know for a fact. As far as that thing in Afghanistan with Hunter Biden, I don't know if he was in those labs, but I guarantee you, Fauci was up to him <laughs> and Biden. Well, so, it, you know, yeah, and I don't know if they're doing pyro drones or anything like that, but you know, maybe so. You know, nothing would surprise me at this point for these people. Well, yeah, nothing would surprise me when it comes to government. That's for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, as, as always, I feel bad and I feel worst for the people who suffer under this, you know, whether it's us or the Ukrainians or whoever's suffering, uh, even the Russian troops, I feel bad yeah. for them because they're being basically forced to do all that stuff. I, uh, you know, I, I again, yeah. government is not the solution. Government is the problem. That's, yeah. you know, it, to, you know, I heard him talking about, uh, Tactical nukes, small nukes, all these new things they got. They were not new. When they busted the Soviet Union up, they lost 29 nuclear backpacks that you could lug into a town and kill a million people. Right. Nine of the triggers went with them, and they were never found by the CIA. CIA. That's, a, that's been said, okay? Right. And that was how long ago? Yeah. That's nothing no. new. Yeah, so. no, it's definitely nothing new. That's for sure. All right, Jeff. Well, hey, I got to go. I got to get a hold of uh, our guest. Thank you for calling in and joining us. I appreciate you sounding off this morning. Uh, all right. We're less than two minutes out here. We're going to get uh, Dr. John Lott on the phone and we're going to uh, get things ready to start with him. And uh, let me get that. Uh, let me get that all squared away here and we'll get him. Uh, on the phone, so to speak. All right. Hey, Michael. Good morning, sir. How are you doing this morning? Do, doing great. How about yourself? You know, it's uh, spring has sprung, and we're ready to uh, we're we're ready to enjoy some sunshine. Been a little dark and cold around here, and now it's starting to get light and uh, above freezing. So we're feeling like spring is finally here. So we're excited about that. 
Okay. Well, glad you guys are happy. Yep. It's all good. Uh, I see you've been busy, busy, busy. We're about to jump into it here. We're about uh, 45 seconds out, but we'll start off with your latest published research on uh, right to carry laws. And then after the break, uh, into the second segment, we can talk about uh, your your new uh, forthcoming research from Public Choice. How about that? Sounds great. Happy to talk to you. Good, good. All right. Well, hold the line. I'm glad I finally got a hold of you and uh, am happy to have you back on the show. So hold the line here. We are 25 seconds out. Folks, do me a favor. Like and share this video. Like and follow the show page. Dr. John Lott is our guest. And we're going to be diving that diving into this with him here in just a hot second. But we always love to have more people involved. So please give us a shout and uh, and give us a thumbs up and a like and share it with everybody you know. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. All right, we're continuing now, jumping uh, jumping into it with our first guest. Uh, you know him as the author of the book, More Guns, Less Crime. Uh, he is a statistician. Uh, he's also kind of uh, taken the world by storm in uh, other areas of statistical research, but really mostly known for his books, including More, uh, More Guns, Less Crime. And of course, his uh, one of his uh, latest works is the War on Guns. He's got a pro- he's got a, a huge number of volumes out there. And lately, he's been working on some very interesting issues, including right to carry statistics uh, and uh, the fact that constitutional carry can uh, be effective, but it's kind of being well, the numbers are kind of being misshown, uh, as well as election fraud. He's actually did, uh, kind of jumped into that as well and done some testing and statistics. And we're going to talk to him about both those things. We start off here uh, to begin with, with Dr. John Lott uh, from the Crime Prevention Research Center. You can find them at uh, crimeresearch.org. Good morning, Dr. Lott. How are you, sir? It's it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been a while. It's good to hear from you, and I'm glad uh, we got a chance to uh, to catch up here and kind of go over uh, what's going on, uh, Doctor. Uh, we were, we're going to talk to uh, Jacob Sullum from Reason Magazine here in the next hour. He just wrote an article specifically talking about you know how constitutional carry is definitely making a move in the country, but the statistics are kind of hard to quantify. And as I was reading that article, I immediately thought, well not for Dr. Lott, we should bring him on. And so lo and behold, you had been working on some similar research on, you know, does the right to carry laws, do they, do they reduce violent crime? And you found some interesting stuff. So let's, uh, let's take that from the top. Right. Well, I mean, uh, right now we have 24 states that have constitutional carry rules. Uh, we have, uh, it looks like very shortly, possibly within a few days, uh, Georgia will be the 25th state. And then uh, you have uh, Nebraska looks very likely to pass also. So that would be the 26th state. Uh, we had five states that adopted it last year and five more this year. So that's a big change. And 
you know, it's too early for these very latest states to be able to do it. But uh, there's work that uh, Carl Moody uh, from William and Mary and Carl and I together have also done other work uh, looking at how for the states that had adopted uh, constitutional carry by 2018, what had happened to a, a wide variety of things. We have an academic journal article that got published recently uh, looking at what happened to murder rates. Uh, we found that murder rates fell. But there's other uh, papers that we have uh, that have looked at uh, everything. Carl's looked at things like um, police deaths. Uh, he's looked at violent crime rates generally. He's looked at uh, um, uh, even firearm homicides. And what you find is that uh, consistently things uh, improve. Uh, so I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not sure what Jacob is referring to when he's saying it's kind of hard to figure out what's happening with, uh, the crime rates in these states. Uh, you'll have to ask him, uh, I don't know if he's familiar with the work that Carl has put together on that, but, uh, um, you know, it's, I, here's the simplest way I think to look at it. And that is, uh, Last By last year, you'd had 21 states that had uh, constitutional carry rules. Not one state had even had a legislative hearing to tr about talking about undoing the rules that they had there. Uh, you would think if there was concerns about crime or concerns about police being harmed or other concerns, you'd at least have someone some legislator in the state putting up some bill to say, look, this was a mistake. Right. Uh, we really ought to think about undoing this. Uh, even in states where you've had complete legislative change in control on who controls the state. So like you've had Maine, for example, that went from complete Republican control of the state legislature and the governorship to complete control by the Democrats of the state legislature and the governorship. You would think, you know, for sure, somebody there, because the interesting thing is how hard Democrats often fight against these laws when they get initially passed. Right, right. Um, you'd think there'd be at least somebody who would still want to undo it then, but uh, they don't, they haven't even had a bill offered that's even had hearing on it to, uh, to try to do it, let alone a vote that's passed. Uh, you know, either House or even uh, even a committee. Right, right. If the, if the new law showed out that it looked like it was going to become the OK Corral because this new, you'd think the Democrats would be lining up to say, look, see, 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 we need to remove this. But they're not right, doing so may, it. Maybe you can ask Jacob to point to one. I mean, the question I ask uh, legislators or others is, uh, or gun control advocates is, point to one state that's even had a legislative hearing to undo the constitutional carry laws that are there. Surely, if the pro their problems, uh, you could point to one or two. But what, you know, it's the same type of debate that uh, we had with right to carry laws right. to begin with. And, uh, uh, you know, there were the OK Corral and other types of statements, as you were just saying, were applied to that, too. Uh, what would normally happen is after six months or a year, you'd see the newspapers and the media outlets in the state saying, well, you know, 
the types of fears that people were raising about the bad things that might happen haven't occurred. Right. And the and the debate would basically just disappear after that. You know, here's the other irony is, uh, uh, I mean, I've been involved with this since my book, More Guns, Less Crime, came out uh, in 98, even before that was some of my research. So I've seen a lot of the changes that have occurred. And, you know, um, you have people who the same people now who oppose uh, constitutional carry opposed right to carry laws. But now they say, oh, we really like the right to carry laws. Those are perfect. We ought to keep those the way they are <laughs> and just not have this change now in this new one. Right. Well, but I... they've lost credibility over time with regard to these things because, you know, and and it. You know, so there's been a general trend over time in terms of loosening the initial right to carry laws that you had. So you'd have many states like Texas, for example, had like three dozen places that you were banned from being able to go and carry guns because when they passed their law in 96, uh, there was all sorts of concerns about the dangers and OK Corral, you know, people carrying guns. And so they had a long list of prohibited places. And over time, uh, the state legislature would go back and reduce the number of prohibited places that you were allowed to have. Because each time you'd see the same legislative debate. Well, you know, if you do this, you're going to see people pulling out their guns and, and harming others. Uh, and each time their predictions turned out to be false and uh, they lost more credibility with regard to the debate. Even even things like, for example, when Texas first passed its right to carry, it was like one hundred and forty dollar fee to get your permit. You had to have 10 hours of training right. uh, mandated in order to get the permit and then 10 hours to get it renewed. And the constitutional carry bill in that state or others is just an example of the loosening, you know, know, constitutional carry, you still have to be a law-abiding citizen, uh, you know, who's able to legally own a gun to be able to legally carry it. Right. Uh, You're still, whatever places you're prohibited from carrying, you're still prohibited. Uh, The two main changes that you see in constitutional carry are, one, how quickly you're able to avail yourself of that protection. So let's say you're a woman who's being stalked or threatened. You know, a lot of these right to carry states, it can take 60 days. It can take 90 days during with the coronavirus. And I think one of the reasons why we've seen such a move to constitutional carry now is you had 20 states that effectively stopped issuing concealed carry permits for long periods of time. And so but, you know, even under normal circumstances, if you're a woman who's being stalked or threatened, you may not have the luxury of waiting. 60 or 90 days before you're able to go and protect yourself or with crime, violent crime surging in many areas of the country over the last couple of years. uh, And we can talk about the obvious reasons why that was the case. But, uh, you know, people 
were worried about being able to go and protect themselves. Right. Well, they were, they were told sometimes that, I'm sorry, we can't come to you. You're on your own. I mean, there was that's right. You know, those were actual uh, those were actual quotes from some people when they called the police on that. And and I want to I want to clarify real quick. One of the things that uh, Sullum wrote was that he said that all the research on constitutional carry is kind of nascent, meaning you know it's it's just coming into being. Uh, but there are other substantial and a, you know a mixed body of research on uh, the earlier shift from May issue to shall issue, and that's what he was talking about. Uh, I mean, well, his- I don't think that that's so mixed either. I mean, I I don't think he knows the literature well then, because uh, look, um, we you should point him to the crime research website where we've gone and done an extensive survey right. of the literature. Right. And uh, uh, what you've, here's the deal. Um, you find about, uh, you find about more than half of the papers uh, find that there's a benefit. Uh, most of the rest claim that there's no impact. And then you'll have a smaller group of papers that claim that there's a bad effect. The, both of those other groups of papers uh, have a flaw in them in that they tend to look at later periods of time. And, and let's say I'm looking at the period from 2000 to 2014 or something like that. Um, what you're doing in these empirical works is comparing uh, the change in crime rates for those states that are adopting the law in that period relative to the changes in crime rates for all the earlier states. Right. And and the assumption is, uh, and the way that these studies look at this, they just have, uh, they just say, do you have the law or not? And they don't take into account the huge differences that exist across the laws. Um, I'll give you a a simple example, and that is compare Indiana and Illinois, two states that are right next to each other. Um, In Indiana, over 22 percent of the adult population has a concealed carry permit. In Illinois, it's 4 percent. Why is there the difference? Well, in Indiana, it's cost $12.95 to go. That's the total cost for getting a concealed carry permit with the background check there. In Illinois, it's cost about $450 (laughs) to go and get a concealed carry permit. Right. So not only do you see when it's more costly, not only do you see a lot fewer people get the permits, but you also see a very important change in the mix of people who go and get permits. Um, uh, The problem is, is that if my research convinces me of anything, the people who benefit the most from getting a concealed carry permit are the people who are the most likely victims of violent crime, poor blacks, for example, who live in high crime urban areas. Well, when you have $450 to go through the whole process to get a concealed carry permit, guess what? It's basically just wealthy white males who live in the suburbs uh, who aren't likely victims of crime. You know, I'm glad they're able to go and protect themselves. But you're not going to see the same reduction in violent crime from concealed carry permit holders when it's mainly people who aren't likely to be victims of violent crime who are the ones who are getting the permits. Right. And, and so, and so um, Illinois is a good example because it's like the last state to adopt 
uh, right to carry type laws. And the later states were much more restrictive in terms of how they got the permits. So we've seen over the last couple of decades a huge increase in the number of concealed carry permits. You look at the end of the 1990s, there was about two million, two and a half million concealed carry permit holders in the United States. By last year, there were uh, over 21 and a half million permit holders in the United States. So we've been seeing an increase in both all the states. The thing is, when you're looking at a period from 2000 to 2014, you're assuming that the states that are adopting the laws they're new are having the biggest increase in permits. And that's not the case because states like Illinois were very restrictive. The other states that had adopted concealed carry before 2000 had a much bigger increase over the 2000 to 2014 period in the number of permits that they issued than the states that adopted them during that period. Right. And so you're making a relative comparison. And in fact, the fact that you find a smaller drop in crime in the new states that are adopting it, relatively old, is actually consistent with more concealed carry permits reducing crime more. Right. And you've gone through this. You've got a new uh, report out at Crime Research talking about this uh, academia letters. You and Carlisle right. Moody put together this uh, sur- this uh, r- report and this research that says, do the right to carry laws still reduce violent crime? And you line out how all this research uh, has been done and how they should be changing it. Researchers studying the effect of right to carry laws should use all the data available and limit the comparison states to primarily may issue states was part of your conclusion uh and you kind of go through this right 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 well what you need to do is you need to you you need to take into account the huge differences in these right to carry laws right uh you know you just you just can't assume that uh a state where it costs 450 dollars to go and get a concealed carry permit and you have 16 hours of training and you're not allowed to take guns on public transportation and and there's no training facilities in chicago yeah okay is the same (laughs) uh as a state where it costs twelve dollars and 95 cents and there's no other regulations that you have to deal with exactly go and carry concealed uh dr john lott is our guest hold the line dr lott we're going to be back with more the michael duke show continues your home for common sense radio You know, this is this is fascinating to me, uh, Doctor Lott, because I mean, again, the argument, and and I think uh, you've made it, I've made it, Jacob Sullen makes it, but everybody, you know, they look at this and they go, "Look, this is a right that uh, you know the the permitting process and everything else." It transforms a right into a privilege, and especially, as you say, it affects disproportionately affects minorities and those who can least afford it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why when Texas removed their uh, stopped requiring carry permits, the one of the most compelling arguments was the elimination of all those fees and, you know, like you said, 12 hours of training and everything else so that most people just couldn't afford to do it. I mean, a, you know, a handgun's expensive enough, but to say that you have to, you must get another, you know, 12 hours of training, which is probably another three, three or 400 bucks, depending on where you are. And all this other stuff is just, uh, you know, it, it was discriminatory really at that point. Right. Well, yeah, well, here's the deal. Uh, you look at a lot of the training requirements that states impose 
And a lot of the stuff's very arbitrary. You know, you may see like Illinois with 16 hours, they, you have like an hour and a half on safe storage of guns. Uh, you have other things that are there. You just have some politicians that go and throw in things uh, into the list that aren't really very useful. I mean, I, I don't know. Do you need to an hour and a half to explain to people how <laughs> safe storage of guns? Right. Here's a uh, lockbox. Put it in here. Turn the key. There you go. That was your safe storage. Right. And the thing is, um, and, and so when you move to constitutional carry, you in fact find uh, people get training because you have law-abiding individuals that don't want to get into trouble. They have a lot to lose if they go and behave improperly. And so they go and get training. The data that I have for Kansas and Idaho after they moved to constitutional training shows a large increase uh, in the number of, uh, of people getting training. But uh, you know, 25% or so increase in the, in the number of people who get training. But uh, the training is more tailored to things that are actually beneficial for them being able to go and carry. You know, a lot of these things like safe storage, uh, to be honest, I think it's kind of polit anti-gun politicians who um, want to try to scare people into not owning guns. Uh, so right. there's a lot of exaggerated claims that get put into uh, into the the training thing there that just to you know kind of indoctrination type stuff more than things that are actually useful uh, for people being able to defend themselves and their families and knowing what the rules on are on where they can legally carry. Right. Well, and that's passed forward. That's also in you know reinforced by the media and by the television right. industry. You know. Oh yeah. Uh, oh sure. Well, I mean, if anybody goes to our website, uh, one of the things that we try to do is uh, just kind of keep up a little bit on all the bias and entertainment television shows. For example, uh, you know, you would think. Uh, during last season on uh, all the uh, police shows on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, you would literally think 80% of the guns used by criminals were machine guns. You know? Right, right, exactly. You, you know how many, you, and Hawaii is awash with machine guns. I mean, Hawaii is really amazing with machine <laughs> guns, but it's just... Uh, According to uh, Hawaii Five-0, right? I mean, that's the... Yeah, well, I mean, you have Magnum PI <laughs> right. and Hawaii Five-0, and it's just... Hawaii Five-0 was the season before was their last one, and they just had it all the time. But, um, uh, you know, it's... Uh, you know the number of murders since the 1930s that have been committed with machine guns in the United States? Oh, it's got to be under 10 probably, huh? I don't One. Know. One. One. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you get more than that in any one show yeah. on uh, these entertainment, you know, or you got, you know, myths about plastic guns. You got uh, one of the favorite themes is uh, somebody not able to use a gun defensively properly, you will search in vain uh, to find TV shows, and except for Yellowstone. Yellowstone is kind of like the one standout there. <laughs> uh, but uh, except for Yellowstone, which may explain part of the popularity for Yellowstone, I don't know. But, right. uh, but uh, if a civilian tries to use a gun defensively in uh, any other police show, uh, something will go wrong. You know, yeah. they'll either oh, yeah. 
get in the way of the police or they'll shoot an innocent person or they'll almost shoot an innocent person uh, or the gun will be taken away from them by the criminal and used against them. Something will go wrong. Yeah, uh, the bias is definitely showing on those things for sure. All right, we'll hold the line, Doctor Lot. We're about to come back into it, and I want to get into uh, want to get into your uh, research on uh, on uh, on voting and ballots and things like that. So hold the line for a second. Doctor John Lot is our guest, a president of the Crime uh, uh, Crime Research uh, Crime Prevention Research. Uh, you can find him at crimeresearch.org. G uh, for all this information. I put links to his latest uh, survey on constitutional carry in the chat room. We're about to jump back into it. Please like and share the show. Let's get to it. Here we go. Common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. All right, welcome back to the program. Continuing now with Dr. John Lott. Uh, he is with the uh, Crime uh, Prevention Research Center. Uh, you could find him at crimeresearch.org if you want to uh, uh, check it out. He's got lots of great info there. We were just talking about uh, how they've been following the bias of media in the entertainment industry and how they actually uh, talk about and review and and show some of the shows and some of the crazy stuff that these people claim. And it's a lot of fear-mongering on the part of both the, the regular media, news media, and of the entertainment media as well. Uh, but I did want to take a few minutes here because he has been working on um, research on vote fraud and uh, things like that. And he's just got a brand new report. It has been accepted at the academic journal Public Choice. And uh, the study reports three tests measuring vote fraud in the 2020 presidential election. And uh, although that's something we haven't covered a whole lot on the program, Dr. Lott is the expert uh, that I would love to have uh, come in and talk with us about it. Uh, because, again, he looks at the he looks at a lot of those stats and it's not just somebody in their basement, uh, you know, cranking stuff out on the interwebs. So let's get a chat about this. Uh, Dr. Lott, uh, tell us a little bit about this and, and the research that you've done and what does this uh, new study show? Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, well, I, I wanted to wait to talk about this until it was accepted at a peer-reviewed journal. Um, and uh, I'm not trying to relitigate the 2020 election, but I think there are a lot of really serious problems uh, in how the 2020 election occurred that, if we don't fix, are going to really cause people to doubt uh, the accuracy and legitimacy of elections in the future. Uh, my estimate is that in the six swing states where fraud, significant fraud was alleged, um, the, Biden got an extra 255,000 votes and possibly uh, as many as uh, 368,000. Um, and, uh, you know, my own belief is that the evidence shows pretty strongly that if you'd had the same types of voting rules in effect in 2000 that you had in 2016, uh, Trump would clearly be the winner. Um, but again, I'm just trying to figure out how to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again, rather than trying to redo the, the 2020 election. I don't think it's much use. 
debating that right now. Right. Um, you know, to me, uh, one of the amazing things is just how uh, the United States differs from other countries in terms of uh, not having anti-fraud uh, type provisions with regard to voting. So, for example, uh, w- one thing that you see is that, uh, um, y- you know, you look at Europe, for example. Uh, what you find, for example, with voter IDs is 46.5 of the 47 in countries in Europe ban, or, I mean, you require that you have to have government-issued photo IDs in order to vote. Right. Uh, the one remaining part is part of the United Kingdom, and they are moving right now to bring them in sync with the rest of the continent, and uh, pretty soon you're going to have all 47 of the 47 countries uh, requiring government issued photo IDs. You look at something like absentee ballots. Um, 35 of the 47 countries ban, completely ban absentee ballots for people living in their country. Uh, another 10 allow it, but they will not send anything through the mail for fear that they could be stolen. Uh, you have to come in in person to pick up the absentee ballot and you have to show a government-issued photo ID to be able to obtain it. And six of those 10 countries actually also uh, limited to people who are in the military or in the hospital at that time. And they won't take your word for it that you're not going to be available. You have to have third-party verification, a certified statement from either the military or the hospital that you will be unavailable otherwise to go and vote on that day. Um, you know, and you see those rules across the countries. One thing that happened in this last election were these ballot boxes, these drop boxes that were out in public. I can't find another country in the world uh, that doesn't have very strict chain of custody regulations with regard to uh, ballot boxes. You know, the notion of leaving a ballot box out you know, at 3 a.m. in the morning with nobody watching it is something that none of these countries even conceive of in terms of discussing as a possibility. Um, And, uh, you know, it's not just Europe, but you see this in developed countries generally, all these types of restrictions. Uh, uh, You know, even our neighbors, Canada and Mexico, require government-issued photo IDs to vote. Uh, Mexico also has a thumbprint. Uh, that's required. Mexico bans uh, absentee ballots for people living in the country there. Uh, you know, so, and, and the other thing is just in these all these other countries, how there's agreement across the political spectrum uh, in terms of these anti-fraud rules. Right. Uh, which is, you know, a huge contrast to the debate in the United States, which is extremely partisan. Uh, you just don't see that in other countries. I mean, I'll give you a simple example or two. Uh, uh, take England. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, a conservative government in 1985, passed uh, voter ID requirements for Northern Ireland. Uh, Tony Blair, in 2002, who headed the Labour government, was concerned that there was counterfeiting of the IDs that were there. And so 
he uh, put forward legislation to mandate much more difficult to counterfeit IDs. Right. Uh, so you had conservative and labor. You look at Mexico, all the parties there support the very strict uh, anti-fraud rules that they have there. Um, so anyway, I, I wanted, I've done a lot of research over the decades on voting, on vote fraud, on voting machine type stuff. And uh, I was working at the U.S. Department of Justice uh, during the 2020 election. And so it kind of was obvious for somebody like me to go and look at this and just give a little bit of background. Um, uh, you have a situation where uh, you had these 61 court cases that everybody points to. These court cases never really dealt with the issue of determining the amount of fraud, because what would happen is, is uh, somebody would go to, a Republican would go complain that the laws were being broken, and uh, the judge would say, fine, you're right, there were irregularities, uh, but was it enough to go and overturn the election results? And the right. Republicans say, we weren't allowed to watch uh, the vote counting, so we need discovery in order to go and figure that out. And the judges say, look, we're not going to grant you discovery until you can come in to begin with, with enough evidence that there was enough fraud uh, to overturn right. the elections. And the Republicans were caught in a catch-22. Well, and I think and, that's I think that's important for what you're saying here. You're not trying to redo the election. You're just trying to point out the fraud. But we're out of time. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Uh, Dr. John Lott, thank you. All right, we, I'm Fine. sorry, we, we were Paper up. Paper at our website, I was. thank you. No, no, I'm sorry, Dr. Lott. I'm sorry, I was up against the break, but we got a minute here or so, so I'll let you finish up because uh, we're in the commercial break and people can go back and listen on the podcast. But I think that was important. You said, look, we're not trying to relitigate the election, but this voter fraud is important for the future because this is, you know, people have got to have faith in the system and if they don't it's gonna i mean you know you run the risk of an irish democracy if that's the case so uh go ahead and and uh, give us a summation here and uh and and how people can find out more well uh the study that's forthcoming in the journal is available at, uh on our website uh go to crimeresearch.org and it's right at the top of the page there and there are three tests that we have uh basically uh, you know, we have to get down to the precinct level, but we look at absentee ballots, provisional ballot issues and uh, and voter turnout irregularities that were occurring. And I think I think people will find that the evidence is pretty strong. Yeah, no, I po I posted links in the chat room here for folks who want to go out and take a look at it. It's definitely some interesting stuff. I haven't peeled through all of it yet, but I'm going to uh, go through it myself. And I really appreciate you doing all that work, Dr. Lott. Thank you so much for uh, coming on board, and thanks for sharing with us. I'll make sure to uh, have you back on soon. Thank you for coming on board. Thank you very much. Dr. John Lott, our guest, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. Again, you can find them at crimeresearch.org. And I put links in the chat room to both the uh, study on the voter fraud and also the study on criminal, uh, excuse me, on constitutional carry, not criminal carry, but you know. Okay. Um,. What do we got here coming up? We're going to be jumping into this with Dr. or excuse me, with Jacob Sullum from Reason Magazine here in just a moment. So I need to get him 
need to get him all squared away here. Um, and we will have him on here in just a hot second. There we go. All right. So we're going to pick it up with him here in a minute. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on this? I, I had to kind of get a little squidgy there. Donna Ardwin in the chat room said, is Michigan in Michigan, police use concealed carry permits as a reason to treat us as dangerous criminals. If we get pulled over for speeding, we, we endure a full body search and a vehicle search. Um, which, uh, wow, the vehicle search part is definitely uh, troubling to me personally uh, because your vehicle has nothing to do with, I mean, in Alaska, you have to notify the police officer that you are carrying concealed. And then if they, and, and during the length of the stop or the interaction, uh, if they asked it, you are required by law to turn your handgun over to them during the length of length of the interaction. But there's nothing about letting them search the vehicle and giving up your Fourth Amendment rights on top of all that. That's that's some troubling stuff right now. Uh, Donna Anthony points out that HB 203, this uh, safe storage bill, is in Juneau right now, and um, that's the one that's being pushed by uh, Garantar and Company. Um, and definitely not something that we need, uh, um, definitely not something that we need, uh, to be having here in the state of Alaska as well. Um, it shouldn't cost anything, says Daniel. The government's charging a fee to allow you to purchase your rights back. It should be illegal. And that's the argument actually that we're going to get from, uh, Jacob Selim here in just a moment from Reason Magazine is that handgun carry permits transform a right into a privilege. And here's his article that I'm posting right now from Reason Magazine that uh, spurred me to uh, to call him and have him come on the program today. So this should be a this should be a good this should be a good discussion. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I always enjoy it. Like I said, full boat today to have Dr. John Lott and Jacob Sullum on uh, on the same day is a pretty it's a pretty good day. It's a pretty good Firearms Friday. Yeah, that's what I like right there. Um, all right. Uh, what else are you guys talking about here? A background check should be as simple as the local PD verifying you're not a felon. Some states require references. Your character should be, uh, your character should be absolutely, your character should mean absolutely nothing. Some states require references. Your character should be absolutely nothing. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not exactly sure what he's saying, but I agree. A simple background check. Uh, I really just like the idea of constitutional carry. You know, um, Brian says, uh, like implied consent, you get a concealed carry permit and waive your rights. I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like with what Donna's saying. Uh, I mean, informing the police officer that you're armed is one thing, even turning your firearm over to them during the length of the interaction is another. But to say that now you've got to do the full body cavity search and they get to search your vehicle. Uh, no, thank you. It's like, no, 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 thank you. Not interested today. I'm sorry. I'm not interested in waiving my constitutional rights today. So I actually said that to a police officer one time and he's like, you know, mind if I search your vehicle? And I said, well, no, I, I actually do mind. I, I don't feel like waiving my constitutional rights today. And he gave me the strangest look. <laughs> uh, it, you know, note, if they don't have probable cause then they need your permission to search your vehicle. If they have probable cause, they don't need your permission. If they ever ask you to search your vehicle, you say no. That's, that's just, you say no. 
Well, I don't have anything to hide. Have you ever read the book Three Felonies a Day? No? Then shut your pie hole. Just shut your filthy mouth because that's what's going on. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get Jacob Selim on the line real quick here before we got to go and uh, get things uh, ready to roll. Let's uh, get him rolling on here. Hello? Hello, Mr. Sullum. Michael Duke's calling. You ready to go? Yeah. All right, hold the line. We're about to jump into it. Uh, we are 60 seconds away. Uh, we're going to put Jacob Sullum back in the virtual green room to eat virtual donuts and drink virtual coffee. And uh, we will kick it with him here. Jacob Sullum, our guest up next, The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Here we go. Returning to the radio right now. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. The Michael Duke Show. I have two guns. One for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my little friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. Michael Kinshaw. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be infringed. Firearms. From my cold, dead hands. Friday. Firearms Friday, your chance to sound off on issues of a Second Amendment nature right here on The Michael Duke Show. It's the one day a week that we dedicate to firearms, gun rights, the Second Amendment, and so much more. Uh, full boat today. We just finished up with Dr. John Lott from the Crime Prevention Research Center talking about constitutional carry and gun rights and some of the metrics and the statistics. I mentioned to Dr. Lott that I was uh, I was spurned to call him after reading the latest article from Jacob Sullum over at Reason Magazine talking about handgun carry permits transforming a right into a privilege and the discussion on the research for constitutional carry and other things, which also, of course, spurred me to call Jacob Sullum and say, hey, buddy, what are you doing this Friday? He joins us this morning to talk about this latest article and more. Good morning, my friend. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? You know, it's another beautiful day in Alaska. It's above freezing almost, and uh, I'm feeling pretty good about it. How about you? <laughs> That's pretty nice here in Dallas. Yeah. This is a nice time of year before the sum summer kicks in. Yeah, before it gets to be 125 in the shade or whatever it is. You know, I would always, I'll just, this is a sidebar, but I would always take two, I would always take cold over hot because you can't get mo much more naked than naked, and I can always put on a sweater. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, I tend to agree. Yeah, so, uh, all all right. Well, let's talk about this article because I think you nail it just in the just even in the title, the headline of the article. Handgun carry permits transform a right 
into a privilege. And this is something that I've been arguing for years, that how can you have a fundam- how can you have a fundamental basic right of the right to, you know, to speech or to keep and bear arms or illegal searches and seizures? How can you be have be fundamentally free in that right if you have to go hat in hand to the government and say if, if, if it so pleases the majesty, may I exercise this right? And this really is, I think, the root of this movement across the country to create constitutional carry. Yeah, I mean, so the analogy would be uh, you have a, a right to free speech under the First Amendment. And one could argue that you can't just let people speak willy nilly because, you know, when people speak, they might incite a riot. They might, uh, you know, defame someone, uh, all kinds of damage can be done, uh, through irresponsible use of speech. So you could say, you know, you do have this right, but you, you want to get some training. We're going to teach you a little bit about defamation law. We're going to teach you about incitements, you know, and other, other possible, uh, crimes that you might commit. Uh, with your speech, so, you, so we know that when you exercise this right, you're going to do it safely and responsibly. And so, complete this course, and um, you know we'll check you out to see if you have a history of uh, you know, having lawsuits, defamation lawsuits filed against you, or irresponsibly using speech. And if not, then we'll we'll grant you this permit. Right. Or so that's we, that's the analogy. Now, and we have a special be, we have a special permit if you're going to use social media because that's a different type. So you need to make sure, sure. that you go through a secondary course for that. So, in other words, the government is recognizing the right. It's just saying that we want you to be prepared and 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 show that you're going to exercise this right responsibly. And so that's that's basically the argument for requiring permits. And even in the states, which is the vast majority of them now, that have uh, you know objective requirements. It's a short list of things that you have to satisfy, and then you can pretty much count on getting the permit. Even in those states, you have to jump through certain hoops. And that's so that's the issue right now with constitutional carry. Now, the people uh, who who support those requirements will say, you know, guns are different <clears throat> because guns can kill people. If you're not properly trained, if you don't know what you're doing with a gun, you actually try to use it, you might end up uh, injuring or killing uh, <clears throat> an innocent bystander. Um, and, and you know, so there is something to that. Um, you know, speech generally does not have that kind of immediate potentially lethal effect. So I think that's the distinction they would draw, but you still have this, this question, both co- the constitutional question, can you attach these kinds of conditions to the exercise of, of a constitutional right? But it's also from a libertarian perspective, uh, if I have this basic human right to arm self-defense, then why should I have to get permission to exercise it? Right, exactly. And I think that's the big thing. And those of us who have chosen to exercise that right, I think for the most part, most people will say, well, I do need to get some, they'll get training on their own, right? I mean, we've seen the rise in training in constitutional carry states, um, even though it's not required, uh, there's become small cottage industries of trainers and things like that that train, because people want to know. It's like, I'm not going to hand you a running chainsaw and say, hey, go buck up that cord of wood over there with this running chainsaw. And you're going to be like, hey, can you show me how to use it first? Because this thing's dangerous, right? People, yeah, so, people know. Yeah. I, I think by and large, that's that's true. You know, I have friends in Texas who have carry permits. And when Texas <clears throat> eliminated that requirement, uh, they were concerned about that. You know, any idiot with no training can just, you know, buy a gun and, and, and uh, carry it around with them. And, and who knows what will happen? I mean, so far, we do have some history with this, right? <laughs> Certainly <clears throat> with making it easier for people to get permits. But we also have at this point, uh, you know, considerable history with eliminating that requirement altogether. 
And there's a lot of dispute about exactly what the consequences of, of those policies are. But what seems pretty clear is that you, you're not getting lots of situations where people um, who are legally carrying uh, handguns are you know, killing innocent people. Right. Well, um, you would hear more about that if it were happening. Um, there are more subtle effects that are harder to measure. And, and there's a lot of uh, you know, argument about those. But um, the main thing that you can say about this change in policy, making it easier for people to legally carry guns in public, is that it has not had the sort of disastrous consequences that critics predicted. Right. There has not been blood running in the streets. Right. Well, you, not, you do not have lots of uh, violent crimes committed by permit holders. Uh, so the question is, once you, you no longer require a permit, is that going to change? Right. Well, remember when Florida, you're old enough to remember when Florida was one of the first states to <laughs> enact concealed carry, right? I mean, the 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 flyers that were going around, it was the you know, showdown at the OK Corral, blood in the streets. I mean, it was, you know, these really visceral images. And of course, just even with a permitting system that it, it never it never came out that way. And the same thing happened with constitutional carry. And in each state where constitutional carry has happened, you're not seeing a proliferation of violence from average everyday citizens who are using their constitutional carry rights to settle disputes over parking tickets. Right. So that I mean, that was the, the initial concern was even though these are law abiding people, even though, you know, they've been cleared in order, you know, in order to get the permit, you have to show you're legally allowed to own a gun, which means that you don't have you know, a felony record. It means you, you don't have uh, even you know, domestic violence misdemeanors. Um, you know, they're also going to look for psychiatric records. Um, uh, you know, if there's any sign that you, God forbid, smoke pot, you're, you know, right, right. you're not, not allowed to do it. Right. <laughs> you, you try to keep that thing kind of thing under wraps. So so they've been in other words, these people have been vetted and they're also self-selected in the sense that it's a certain kind of person who wants to do this. And they tend to be uh, more law abiding, less inclined to violence than the than the average. Right. Um, so, you know, so that's been the experience. And this is, you know, as you mentioned, that trend has been going on since the 80s. I mean, even before that, I think Vermont has never, never required permits for public carry. Um, so you have a long history at this point of states making it relatively easy to, to carry guns legally in public. Um, and you just have not had the sort of dramatic disastrous consequences. Right. There still is the issue of you know, does increasing the number of people who, legal, who are, are legally carrying guns, does that serve as a deterrent to criminals such that uh, certain categories of crime go down, right? And so John Lott has long argued that this drives down the murder rate, controlling for other, you know, variables that, uh, uh, you know, the awareness that uh, people are more likely to offer armed resistance is a deterrent, right? Right. And so that could affect property crime, that could affect, um assaults that might result in death and that sort of thing. Um, on the other hand, this is one of the subtler uh, uh, you know, uh, possibilities, is that uh, criminals knowing that may now be more inclined to carry guns themselves. Right. Well, right. So that, that's, yeah. another, that's the sort of um, you know, side effect that you would want to take into account. And the problem is in measuring these effects, I mean, there are studies all over the place that say, uh, you know, uh, the shell, shell issue laws have no discernible impact 
There's studies that say that. There's studies that say um, this helps reduce crime. And there's studies that says that, no, actually, it increases crime, um, or at least it's associated with an increase in crime. Right. Sorry, and then you have to ask which crime, right? So it depends on the category you look at, whether it's assault, whether it's property crime, whether it's homicide. Um, and you may get different results for each of those categories. So, so I think that that is a long-running debate. It's not going to be resolved anytime soon. So you have to come back to the question of, you know, do we need to resolve that before we say that you may exercise this right that's guaranteed by the Constitution? Right. Um, and I, my answer is no. I don't think, you know, first of all, I'm not sure it's going to be resolved. Um, but secondly, your right should not hinge on resolving that academic debate. Right. Because exactly. it's, it's a basic a basic right of, of armed self-defense. Um, and, um, you know, it shouldn't hinge on what the global you know, collective impact of this policy changes. Right. And, and for folks out there that are uh, getting a little bit confused on some of the uh, the terminology, we're talking about, you know, what Jacob's talking about there is basically three things. We're talking about, uh, you know, a, a permitted right to carry, which comes in two flavors, may issue and, sa- and shall issue. Shall issue says... You, unless there's a reason why legally they shouldn't own a gun, you shall issue them a permit. May issue leaves it up to the discretion of the powers that be. That could be a, a city council or a police department or a state government. And then you've got constitutional carry, which basically says if you're legally, it's like what it is here in Alaska. If you're legally allowed to to own a gun, you can carry that in public concealed without a permit. And so those are the three different things. And and more and more states, I think uh, Dr. Lott just says something like 24 states are at constitutional carry with, I think, four more discussing it. So you've got uh, almost a majority of the states in the country right now that are like, if you can legally own a gun you should be able to and that uh, you should be able to carry it and that is really the heart of the argument of whether or not this is a fundamental right should we have to go beg the government's permission and yeah so at this point it's 41 states that either have shell issue laws meaning it's non-discretionary as long as you meet these objective criteria you, you you can get a permit or don't require a permit at all as long as you're legally allowed to own a gun um and you have nine states that give uh, government officials uh, wide discretion uh, to deny a permit, which they tend to do. And so, <clears throat> for example, New York State um, requires that you show proper cause. And what that is, is going to depend upon the judgment of uh, local officials who are vetting these applications. Um, and that's going to vary across the state. It, does, right. it does vary across the, street, the right. state. Uh, so, you know, in New York City, <laughs> you know, unless you're famous or, or rich, uh, you're, you're probably not going to get uh, a, a permit. But elsewhere in the state, it's somewhat easier. But, the, you know, the issue is, should there be such discretion? And that's exactly what the Supreme Court is considering now. Um, they're going to rule this this term on. Well, first of all, they have to say explicitly this Second Amendment right extends beyond the home because they have never explicitly said that. You would think that that's a no-brainer because it's a right to keep and bear arms, right. right? It's not just you know bearing it from your bedroom to the kitchen, but but you know uh, the, you know historically what that has meant is bearing it in public as well. Um, and so that's the first question. And the next question is, given that it does extend beyond the home, what kinds of restrictions can governments legitimately impose? on exercising that right. And I think, again, it seems easy to resolve the issue with New York's law just because it gives, you know, uh, really unbridled discretion to to the government to say, no, you may not do this. And then the trickier question becomes, what if, what about, 
laws that are, are less uh, onerous that say, you know, jump through these hoops and you'll get a, a carry permit. And the one of the practical issues with those laws um, is that for people who don't have much money um, and are, are looking at paying, well, in Texas, the fee used to be 140, they reduced it, and now it's zero in effect because there's no permit requirement. But say, say $140 permit fee, and then you have to take a course that may cost $100, $200. Um, and, uh, you know, you're already on the hook for the cost of the, of the gun, right? right? So if you already have to pay, you know, four or $500 for the weapon, and then you also have to get ammunition for the course and you got to pay for the course, you got to pay for the fee that can be uh, prohibitive for people who don't have much money. Right. Um, um, and, and those people are especially likely to live in dangerous neighborhoods where they need protection. Right. So that's, that's a question of, of fairness. You know, in addition to the, the broader question of, you know, can the government force you to ask permission to exercise a right, uh, there's a, the practical issue of what are the barriers that you're, uh, you know, putting in front of people who have good reason uh, to worry about violent criminals and, and want to protect themselves. Well, and I think, and I definitely want to cover this here. We're going to come up into the break here, but I definitely want to cover this because this is the discriminatory aspect of gun control laws. And we can go back into the history of gun control laws, and they have a history basis in discrimination to begin with. But this is kind of one of those ancillary effects that you know people aren't really considering, that people who need the guns the most in the high crime areas uh, and in, in other places are the ones that are going to be disproportionately affected by these uh, shall issue, may issue, all these hoops and everything else, and they're the least likely to be able to protect themselves when they need it most. So we'll continue to talk about this. Jacob Sullivan is our guest, a senior editor at Reason Magazine. We're going to be back with more. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show continues. You're home for Common Sense Radio. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on, on, the, on the Internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the break with Jacob Sellum from Reason Magazine right now. Uh, and we'll change gears a little bit here before we... Uh, um, We'll we'll change gears uh, before we uh, jump back into this because I don't like to repeat ourselves. Brian in the chat room just said, "Please explain the Duke's rule of three to Mister Solomon." <laughs> Do I need to preach to Mister Solomon? I think that he's already in our camp. Um, uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob, I have this uh, I have this thing that we talk about on Fridays uh, that I call the rule of three. That if you're going to be a if you're going to be a, a, a you know, an, an honest law-abiding uh, citizen who is a real, true, and strident measure a member of the gun culture. Then, if you purchase a handgun, that you should expect to spend three times the amount of the cost of the gun. So your total cost, if it's a $500 gun, you should expect to, you know, really in the long run, expect to spend about 1500 because you'll have 500 for the gun. You'll have 500 for proper training, not just a concealed carry course, but maybe, you know, combat pistol course or whatever. And then you'll spend $500 on good accessories. So you're not, you know, got the $5 uncle Mike's floppy holster in your, uh, in your dress belt, but maybe you've got a good belt, a good holster, dummy rounds, extra mags, practice stuff, all 
all that kind of stuff. So I've there you go. I explained the rule of three to Mister. What about Mr. ammunition? Well, ammunition is included in the in that uh, in that. <laughs> that's the accessories. <laughs> that's the accessories. You know, that's a consumable, but it is considered in the accessories. But yeah, we've we I've preached that for many many years. That you know, sure you can buy a gun and just have it and use it as you need it. But if you're serious about going forth armed, if you're serious about carrying concealed, then anybody who's really serious about that should expect to invest that much. Maybe not all at the very beginning, but over the course of, you know, shortly after you get it, you should look at investing in that. And I think, like I said, I think most average law-abiding citizens are doing that. These places with constitutional carriers seeing a boom of, of, uh, you know, training courses and different shops and little businesses starting up to train people. It's even worse with dogs, by the way. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. That's, that's like the rule of 20 <laughs> you know, or something, You pay a few hundred dollars for the dog, and yeah. uh, that's just the beginning of it. Yeah, that's <laughs> like the rule of 20. With all you the know. vet bills and vaccinations and <laughs> food, yeah. accessories. Now, you, live, now you, you live in Texas, and, of course, Texas has made a lot of changes recently, uh, and I think changes for the good overall. Um, and, uh, I mean, were you a member of the gun culture before you moved down there or what, I mean, is that what your no, history? No, no, you know, I'm not sure I am now. I, uh, you know, you know, I have a, a few long guns that I, uh, that my brother gave me. He used to take me shooting when I was a kid. And, um, you know, back then they had, uh, riflery in Jewish day camps. Right. I, I doubt they do that anymore, <laughs> but uh, so, so we did that. And, um, and my brother used to take me shooting. So he had, um, let's see, he had a, um, a, a revolver. Um, he had some other kind of handgun, which he has sold, which I don't think I ever used. I used, I remember using the revolver, uh, the shotgun. Um, he had a 22, you know, hunting rifle. And he also had, um, what is, depending upon the law qualifies as an assault weapon, which is, he also gave me. Um, and, uh, I also took riflery in college as a, a, to satisfy my phys ed requirement, believe it or not, (laughs) 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 which was sort of bogus, but, uh, it was, um, yeah, because I, I did weightlifting the first semester, and I was like, "That was that was too much." Yeah, uh, <laughs> like getting up early in the morning to do that. So second semester, I did riflery, and they taught taught us the, you know, the three different stances. Right. You're standing, kneeling, and and prone. Right. Right. And and like it's like a cinder block room shooting at these paper targets. It was fun. Yeah, um, that's, a, uh, that's a good. That's a good way to get through phys ed. I like that. I, I should have taken yeah. that for sure. Um, yeah. So I'm not. I'm not you know, a huge aficionado or anything. I'm just interested in the, in the policy and the, the right. legal issues, the co- constitutional issues. Well, we'll make um, you, we'll make you an honorary member of the gun culture. How about that? No, I mean, you know, essentially anybody who owns a gun and at least says, you know, this is my right, I think is at least a provisional member, if nothing else. So that's, uh, that's good stuff. All right. Well, hold the line here, Jacob. We're 20 seconds out. So let's rejoin. And we're going to talk about again, I think the discriminatory nature, and I do want to touch back again, on the uh i do want to touch back again on the uh, uh the scotus case uh that's coming up as well so we'll revisit that again the michael duke show like and share like and follow hit subscribe ring the bell on youtube all the places where we're playing right now here we go jacob Selim, our guest common sense radio
Continuing now, Jacob Sullum, senior editor at Reason Magazine. You can find him at Reason.com. I've posted links up to his latest article in the chat room talking about handgun carry permits, transforming a right into a privilege. And Jacob, before we went to break, was just touching on one of the problems. I mean, I think, uh, you know, all gun control has its roots basically in discriminatory practices. I think we can see that starting in the South and Jim Crow and all that. But even today, the unintended consequences of a lot of these bells and whistles and hoops that politicians love to put into the permitting process is that it disproportionately affects those who, you know, who can least afford it and probably for the most part are in the highest, uh, you know, are the highest needs users of this. I mean, they're in, you know, rural areas, usually uh, disproportionately uh, filled with minorities and probably some of the more dangerous areas of these communities, and yet they're the ones that are disproportionately affected, Jacob. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of gun control, uh, it's very clearly going back to colonial times that it was explicitly racist. Um, I mean, the laws you know, explicitly said, you know, black people either can't have guns or they can only have them under these circumstances. Um, and these laws, uh, you know, in the South were, were very clearly used to disarm black people. Um, right. And later on, it became more subtle. So it, on the, it wasn't uh, you know, explicitly racist, but you have laws like concealed, uh, you know, carry rules or rules about about who can carry guns in public. You have uh, local officials being given lots of discretion, as is still the case in nine states. Um, and that was initially a matter of we, since we have discretion, we can let white people have guns, but not black people. Um, and then uh, another example is. Uh, banning uh, less expensive guns, right? The right? Saturday which, night which specials, right? That's the so just, the so-called so, Saturday night specials, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was, I mean, that that started in the South in the in the nineteenth century, and then Congress uh, in the sixties, uh, uh, you know, banned you know so-called Saturday night specials, um, and that was really not so subtle because it was uh, i mean it was largely a reaction a reaction to urban unrest at the time um and uh, uh so you could say that that you know the the, the ulterior motive was to target black people but certainly in 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 terms of its impact if you're if you're making guns you know the ones that are still allowed they're going to be more expensive for people who have less money who are disproportionately uh, black um, there, it's going to be more of a barrier for them. Right. Um, and then nowadays, you know, I don't think the average member of the Democratic Party as far as gun control has it in for black people, but the practical results are still similar because the, the more barriers you, as you put barriers, uh, uh, you know, between a person and, and exercising the Second Amendment rights, they're going to be uh, more burdensome for people with less, less means to deal with it, uh, financial means or just time. You know, right. um, the time that, that is required if you if you have a job that you're going to lose by missing work, uh, you know, it just makes things harder. Um, and, you know, so the people who are uh, not not just, um, you know, financially less well off, but also are more likely uh, to live in, in, in neighborhoods that, have, you know, have high high rates of violent crime. Those are the ones who are going to be most affected by these rules. Right. Well, and again, on the flip side of that. Uh, you know, it equals the playing field. It levels the playing field because criminals, by their very definition, break the law. So they're not they're not interested in uh, bothering to jump through all the, the bells and whistles and legal loopholes that we're talking about. So they're carrying guns without all that red tape anyway. So all it does is help level the field for the law abiding citizens. 
Right. And and that's, you know, so that that's really uh, one of the main points is that the only people who are going to bother, uh, you know, to, to follow the law are, are the people who are not criminals. Um, and the question is, how, how much trouble do you want to make it for them in order to exercise the right to self-defense? And, and right. you know, in cities like New York, if you want to have a gun for self-defense, you're going to have to do it illegally. Right. And so you have, yeah, and or, you know, you have all of these uh, crackdowns on, you know, illegal gun possession that are, are, are aimed at reducing violent crime. But a lot of the people who are affected by, you know, get arrested for illegal gun possession are not criminals. They're just they just want to protect themselves. Right. No, absolutely. We're down to about the uh, last four and a half, five minutes here. So I want to circle back to what you were talking about with the Supreme Court case. There's a case coming up in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, it's in the it's in the it's in New York and it's an issue of uh, may may issue versus shall issue. But it also is probably going to settle the dispute about whether or not you mentioned it earlier, whether or not you have the right to keep and bear arms outside the home, which to many of us, as you said, makes perfect sense because the bear part is you want to bear them with you wherever you are. Um, and there's a lot of historical evidence that uh, that the right was understood to be a carrying a right in public. And and this is this could be as big as Heller if uh, if it comes out the way that we expect. And I expect it, too. I don't know what your thoughts are, but. Yeah, no, I think it's almost certain that the court will say the right to bear arms, you know, extends beyond the home. Um, and, and, and it's almost certain they're going to say, uh, that New York's regulations are, are too strict and they give too much discretion to local officials, um, that if you have a right, you know, it shouldn't be up to, uh, the government to say, uh, you know, I don't like the look of you. <laughs> I don't, you know, think, I don't think you have a good enough reason, right, you right. know, to have a gun. And wanting um, to, and, and by, by the way. way I was just going to say, so, by wanting to protect yourself is not a good enough reason. In that's New York right. State. Exactly. I was just, that was exactly what I was going yeah. to say is that under New York law and under the laws in, in these other eight states, uh, when you say, well, you know, I live in a dangerous neighborhood, I'm worried about violent criminals. No, that will not qualify as that's not proper cause. You need a very specific, you know, uh, personal reason that uh, it goes beyond that sort of general concern about violent crime. Right. Um, and, and so then that's the issue. And so I think they're going to say that, yes, that's, that gives the government too much discretion. But then the question becomes, you know, what, what kinds of regulations are constitutional? And here they're going to look at, um, you know, the history of, of gun laws in the United States. And it very clearly has been regulated. So, um, I mean, that's sort of their approach is to say what, you know, what longstanding regulations do we see? Because the presumption is if these, these have been around for a long time, then People who had a better idea of the original, you know, original understanding of the Second Amendment thought this was okay. Uh, that's sort of the, their general approach. So I think I don't think they're going to say this can't be regulated at all. Um, and you know, the issue of, of 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 less strict laws is not before them in any case. They only have to go as far as saying this particular law, New York's law, is is uh, is unconstitutional. Now, again, we just recently it was uh, uh, was it Ohio and Indiana and Alabama all just joined the fold as far as uh, constitutional carry, um, and and I think that this is a trend, and I think 2020 pushed on that trend pretty hard because 
you know, we saw what happened where people would call the police and they're like, hey, you're on your own. Uh, and so people really started to understand that they did have to take their own personal responsibility. And then they discovered that it wasn't as easy to get the gun as all the Democrats said it was. And so now you're starting to see, I think, some pushback on this. Do you expect right to carry states? Uh, or, you know, do you expect a, a constitutional carry states to increase in the next couple of years? Do you see this becoming a, a real majority in the future? Yes, I think it will. I mean, it's it's the same pattern that we saw with moving from shell issue or may issue to, to shell issue laws. Um, you know, basically, some states do it, and it turns out it's not a disaster. Uh, and then other states are like, all right, maybe our fears were you know uh, overwrought. Um, and encouraging the more states that do it and 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 do not suffer any obvious disasters as a result, uh, the more likely other states are to follow that example. So, yes, I think, I mean, we're nearly at half of the states right now, uh, including Texas, by the way, which is, you know, the second most populous state. That's a, that's a huge deal. Um, you know, Californians not going to do it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but there are plenty of other states that, that are, that, uh, where legislators, uh, are probably inclined to say, let's, let's dispense with these requirements. Um, and yeah, so I think, uh, I don't know if it'll get up as high as, as, you know, the number of states that switch to shell issue but i think it will be soon be a majority of states well i'm kind of looking forward to that time my friend uh jacob Sellum, reason magazine senior editor over there he always writes good stuff i love having you on sir i hope you have a great weekend thank you for taking the time to talk with us today sure thanks for having me take care all right uh folks we got more coming up willie waffle wafflemovies.com up next we're gonna dive into a little bit of lighter side entertainment stuff that's all coming up the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show. Streaming live every weekday morning, 6 to 9 a.m. on Facebook Live and michaeldukeshow.com. Okay, in the break right now. I'm going to equip my drone with mini machine guns. Do I need a permit, says Chris. <laughs> yes, yes, you do for that. <laughs> uh, if I drop a few thousand on a week-long course at, say, gun site or the like, does this mean I need to upscale the ratio proportionately, Brian? You know, that's something that you'd probably have to ask Mrs. Brian, I think, at that point. But I would say that you have a valid argument for it. I mean, if it's the rule of three and you're going to spend $3,000 on training, you might just need to spend another 3000 on equipment and accessories. I, I would say that that's a valid argument. But you just have to decide how long you'd like to sleep on the couch. That's all I'm saying right now. Um, as a 20-year infantry vet in the Army, shouldn't my DD-214 serve as proof of being trained in the safe use of firearms, especially after taking courses as a range safety officer? I would think that that, you know, if there is a state that requires, has some kind of training requirement, um, is the is the uh, that there should be an opportunity for ancillary training. I mean, if I showed up as a, I mean, I'm an NRA certified fireman instructor. If they had some kind of uh, requirement for that, shouldn't I just be able to show them, flash my, flash my badge or my patch or my certificate and say, yeah, done. That's already done. Probably. Yeah, probably. I would say that would make sense. Luckily in Alaska, we don't have to do with that. The MD show streaming live from six to nine. Where's my third hour? What did I grab an old, does it say six to nine? 
Streaming live every weekday morning, 6 to 9 a.m. on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Well, apparently when I refilled one of my bars there, I grabbed an old one. Uh, I used to broadcast from 6 to 9 a.m. before I returned to the radio. When I was doing it on the Internet only, it was a three-hour show, 6 to 9 a.m. So sorry, no third hour for you, Dan. Sorry, it's not going to not gonna happen. And now you're going to make me go out and fix that because... <laughs> Because I had fixed it at one point. I'd cut the 6 to 9 a.m. out of the middle of it. So, um, <clears throat> mm-mm, mm-mm. great interview, said Paul. That was with Dr. Lott uh, from before. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. I do enjoy having Dr. Lott on the show. He's a, he's a little hard to rein in sometimes because he gets going and he's just got so much good info. Uh, and I got to stand in front of him sometime to slow him down. But he is just chock full of goodness. I love talking to him. Um all that stuff he talked about creates a financial barrier, which is discrimination. Exactly. I mean, that's what, you know, gun control, really the roots of gun control is in discrimination. Uh, as Jacob Sullum just mentioned a minute ago, I mean, that that's the, the roots of it come back. I mean, they were, it was purport. It was really most first gun control laws in the country were really put in place to disarm blacks. That's really what it was. And now it's more the unintended consequences, because as he said, he doesn't think the Democrats are out there to, you know, they're not intentionally out there to harm, you know, minorities or blacks or whoever. But at the unintended consequences is, is that it does create more barriers. And that's a huge part of the problem. Huge part of the problem. Um, it shouldn't cost anything. The government charges a fee to allow you to purchase your rights. Okay, so we're, all right, and I'm back to all of the beginning. Uh, Michael, it's just like the government promise you three and give you two. Uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know what? Uh, get used to disappointment. I mean, I'm just saying, right. You know, <laughs> life's not fair. Timothy, get used to disappointment. <laughs> oh man. It's Friday yesterday. Oh. On a personal note, yesterday, if it could go wrong, oh, it went wrong spectacularly. Spectacularly. Oh, <laughs> uh, and so I was, and I literally was thinking the whole last half of the afternoon, thank God it's Friday. And then I realized it was Thursday and I was like, oh my, just kill me now. Just kill me now. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Just like the government. That's right. I am just like the government. Um, all right. So what else are you guys doing this weekend? I'm waiting for Willie. I'm waiting for my phone to ring here. It's going to ring here in a second. But what are you guys doing this weekend? Anything fun? Hmm? Huh? Hmm? Ugh. I don't know what I'm going to do. It'll be fun. I'm going to send my children out to scrape up the dog poop that's growing up in the yard as the snow declines the thing. Yeah, you guys who've got a job this weekend, they're going to love me so much. Here's a shovel. Here's a shovel. Here's a rake. You go to town. Um, really? The Democrats still divides up group by class, culture, race, and gender. So they have they really changed? Really? No, I mean, I'm not saying that they're, you know, not. But purportedly... They are for the minorities, right? That's the whole, that's what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, all right. Well, 30 seconds out. My phone just flashed, which means we're ready to go. You guys ready to dive into this for the weekend movie review? I am. I'm ready. 
We're going to get to it. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like, share, subscribe, ring the bell, do all that stuff. Let's, uh, let's get down to it. Here we go. All right, welcome back to the program, The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. This is it, the weekend. It's right around the corner. You know, we're doing the entertainment stuff, and that, of course, brings us to our friend Willie Waffle, who I'm sure is going to gloat today because of how much I hate the Oscars and how it was the biggest thing in the news cycle this week, but probably not for the reasons that we, you know, you would expect. Uh, Willie Waffle, hello, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great because every year people ask me, Willie, why do you watch the Oscars why? every oh, single year? Why, yeah. And and it's it's you know it's not for the love of the art. It's not to honor the history of Hollywood. It's because they might give the award to the wrong person at some point, right? Or someone might slap someone. So we talked about this a little bit on Monday after it happened, just because I found it so fascinating. Uh, Will Smith uh, was, or excuse me, Chris Rock was up on stage. Will Smith and his wife right there in the front row. Chris Rock makes a joke about Will Smith's wife that, well, I, I know we're all open. If you're in the public eye, you you know, you should be ready for that. But she's got a medical condition. And it was kind of a, I mean, you heard the joke fall flat with the crowd, right? And the crowd was like, ooh, you know, kind of thing. And uh, and but then Will Smith got up and just smacked him right in the face for it. Uh, although I will say that first Will laughed, then he looked at his wife's face and then he got up and went and smacked Chris Rock. for it. That's right. That's when he realized, oh, I screwed up. Yeah. Oh, man, I screwed up. I got to make up what you know, I mean, you know, all of us you know, have been in that position at some point. It's like, oh, man, what am I going to do to make up? Yeah. What am I going to do to make good for this? Right. And, and the best idea he could come up with at the time is let me go smack Chris Rock in the face and. Let me tell you, watching it happen live was just mesmerizing because at first you're thinking, oh, he's doing it as a joke. You know, oh, he's walking up there. He's probably going to like fake do something. And then he hauls off and there is mayhem. The the, the Oscars are, are censoring, bleeping every single thing that's happening. The screen actually froze at one point that, and you didn't know it was real until they finally like got the screen unfrozen and they, they still killed the volume. But you could see what Will Smith was saying, and and I didn't need the volume on to know he was angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could tell it was real from the time you got the reaction from Chris Rock as he spun back around, like he really hit me. I mean, it was yeah. like like he really hit me. Uh, of course, this caused the Oscar ratings to go up, but not nearly enough, right? Well, and this is this is my favorite. This is my favorite part of the story. So, you know, every year there's always the the next day when the Oscars have aired, there's always the talk about the ratings and were the ratings any good? And and they they've been plunging for years and years and years. Last year hitting like 10 million, which is the lowest they've ever hit ever because, you know, COVID and doing things at a weird time of the year. Well, this year the the ratings went up. The ratings went up to 50 i'm sorry up to 16 million so of course they're trumpeting it they're saying oh the the, the ratings are up 58 percent hey guess what guys it's still the second worst rated oscars ever 
Yeah, because Oscars used to pull in like what, like fifty million or something. Oh yeah, you know, for a long time the Oscars were always the second most watched program of the year behind the Super Bowl, and and those numbers have gone down. I mean, you know, precipitously we've seen uh, we've seen it drop from like forty down to thirty million, um, kind of in in the two thousand tens, if you will. And then what we've seen over the past three years has just been a cratering. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the the best part is. You know, they did they did take a look at like when did the Oscar ratings spike? Like 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 what were the three moments where the ratings went up? Now I bet you know which ones they were. <laughs> Let's see, the joke, the slap, the sit down, the smack the, the the sound off. What was it? So the three moments were the smack, Will Smith getting his his Oscar. Right. And the moment that the Coda actor Troy Kutzer won. Okay. All right. Well, good good enough. And we're hearing all kinds of things now about how Will was asked to leave and he didn't leave. And now they're they're t- are they gonna take back his Oscar and blah blah. Who cares? Well, it, you know, it's it's interesting because I, originally there was not there was no plan in place to actually take somebody's Oscar away right. until like 2017. And that was the year of Harvey Weinstein and everybody was all outraged and they wanted to take away his Oscars and punish him and show him, show him who's boss. But, um, you know, they, they didn't have any kind of bylaws that would allow them to do that. Right. Uh, so that's where the code of conduct came from. So that if they ever had a Harvey Weinstein again, they could take the Oscar back. Well, so now Will Smith has essentially, I mean, he's essentially been censored. I mean, they, they, they've outright said that, you know, he was in the wrong and that he will be punished. And uh, he has to provide a written response to the Academy. I think it's by April 18th where they will meet and they will make their decision. And I'm guessing he will be, he will be suspended for a year and the and what makes that a big deal is that he has a movie coming out this fall where he had a really good chance of getting another nomination uh, well you know this is what happens uh let me tell you who didn't come out too bad from this chris rock oh god he's doing awesome people didn't know chris rock um was starting a comedy tour this week right and uh he, he every every like saturday night he's gonna be playing in some big casino someplace across america except um he he did start the uh he did start the tour on wednesday uh in boston and and the funny thing is you know ticket sales were okay but a lot of the secondary ticket selling markets have reported that it, since the slap, just in 24 hours since the slap, the number of tickets they sold equaled about what they sold the entire month of March. The minimum ticket prices rose from like 46 bucks to 341 bucks. Wow. Wow. And here's the fun part. I think Chris Rock knows how to play this. So oh, oh, yeah. everybody in the world was looking to see what was he going to say Wednesday night when he finally took the stage in Boston and he said, I don't have anything to say right now. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, you know, I got it. I'm processing it, but there will come a time when I will say something funny and serious about it, which in my mind went ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. He wants someone to pay him for an interview. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> this is the Will Smith slap tour. This is where I talk about that in this next tour. It's, it's already setting it up for his next tour. 
Uh, he oh, got, well, you know, Netflix has a deal with him. I bet they would love him to do a special all about yeah. this. Net, yeah, the, Will Smith is a biatch. That'll be the name of the of the thing or whatever. <laughs> um, he got a standing O at his, uh, op- at his opening show and everything. So I think people understood, you know, uh, but it, it it's... I don't know. It's it's good. All right, we got about five minutes here. We got three big uh, streams to talk about uh, movies and streams. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, you know, let, let's uh, let's start. Let's start. I know you're excited about Morbius. Do you want to start with Morbius? I well, yeah, I'm I'm wanna. I'd like sure. Yes, let's start with Morbius. Executive decision. Yeah, I was excited too till I saw it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean. It's not horrible, okay? Uh, but you know, I I don't I think I think you're seeing that you know this is not really a Marvel product. Yeah. That, you know, like he's a Marvel character, and 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 they're bringing him to life, and they're really bringing him uh, into more of the other other Spider-Man universe that is in the Sony world. Okay, and that's where things start to get a little bit different. So you've got Jared Leto playing a biochemist who's trying to cure himself of a rare blood disease and his buddy who's played by Matt Smith. And the, uh, the cure he finds is basically blood from bats and he turns into a vampire. Nice. Nice. I saw the trailer. So, it looks pretty good in the trailer, but it looks good. Now, now th- th- it's not, it's not a total lost cause. Okay. I, I think that, you know, as far as like looking interesting, looking cool, it's there. I do like a lot of the effects that they're using. I like the way they're using the colors. I like the way they're using like the streaks as he's moving through the through the air. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff there. And I don't even think you can you can you can down Jared Leto and Matt Smith. I think Leto is is a very serious, very very deep actor. I think he brings that to this character, a character who's brooding all the time, who's very down all the time. Matt Smith, I think, is playing a great villain. You know, really just full of of, of all the stuff that you want to hate in a villain. I just think that, you know, we've seen the story before and I feel like they're spending so much time trying to set us up for a franchise. They forgot to tell us a real deep story here. Uh, okay. All right. Well, I mean, again, it's not, it's, it's a Marvel property, but it's not set necessarily in the Marvel cinematic universe. So that's a tougher one. Uh, negative one to four waffles. Where do you sit from Morbius? I'm going to go, I'm going to go two waffles. Okay. I'm going to go two waffles. Middle and, you know, they know how to play the game. There's there's scenes during the credits, people. Of course there is. Of course there is. All right. What's up next? Well, you know, I think The Girl from Plainville on Hulu. You know, this is kind of an interesting series. So it stars Al Fanning. It is the true story of, of a young lady who has been put on trial for encouraging a young man to commit suicide. And and it, this is a case, you, you might remember the case, where she and he were texting back and forth. And when he started talking about doing this, she started to encourage him to do it. Right. I remember this vaguely, like instead of offering to get him help or pumping him back up, she's like, yeah, just go ahead, do it. The world will be better. Uh, and I was like, wow, that you are not a good human being. No. And and they're really trying to stretch this thing out. I mean, yeah, I think there's supposed to be like seven or eight episodes and 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 the first three are already out there. And and there's just a lot of filler in here. Uh, you know, I, I think Elle Fanning is fantastic. I mean, she really does play this this young lady in a very creepy fashion. Like you sense the desperation, you sense, you know, how she wants to get almost popularity from all this before people find out the real story, before right. they find out what she really 
really said. And so you can sense that 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 is coming as we watch the detectives putting the case together throughout the first few episodes. Okay. Well, I mean, again, I was icked up enough just from the news story. I don't know if I need to see a reenactment of it. So, uh, but I'm sure my wife will love it. I'm sure it'll be good. Negative one to four waffles for the girl from Plainville uh, who talks people to death, literally. Uh, what do you give it? Two and a half waffles. Okay. It beat out Morbius. That's disappointing. Um, this third one, I actually am interested in seeing this simply because I, I've, I hadn't known about this character until a few years ago. And I was like, well, this is really interesting. It's called Moon Knight. Uh, and this is essentially the Marvel version of of Batman. I mean, that's really kind of the character. And we've seen this throughout the years. DC and Marvel have kind of gone back and forth with characters who are kind of mirror images of each other. Um, although this guy's got a really interesting backstory. So give, give me your take on this. Yeah, so Disney Plus series starring Oscar Isaac. Uh, you know, he, he is a man who has uh, disassociative identity disorder, or as we normally call it, multiple personalities. Right. And so, you know, we, we kind of see in the first episode, that's really all that's out there right now is that first episode, you know, they, they, they show us kind of, you know, this, this meek and mild life that he leads, you know, he's, he's, he works at a, in a, a museum uh, shop, basically a, a clerk, you know, selling a, or a cashier selling candy at the museum shop. But what he knows is that, Things happen to him at night, and and he ends up waking up in all these crazy places. And uh, we start to realize that you know he does have these multiple personalities, and they're living out these these battles and these these you know fantastical kind of you know uh, almost like mercenary lifestyles. And he quickly realizes he's now fighting forces bigger than he could ever imagine egyptian gods that are simply walking among us yeah uh this is a cool story um because uh and i don't want to give anything away but he was he discovers something in egypt at one point and uh it's what it basically empowers him to be able to fight this evil um and but the multiple personality disorders the schizophrenia on top of this is just such a twist um, that I've always, I've always thought the story was very cool and I had hoped that they would do something on it. They're doing a series. Uh, this is tied into the Marvel universe or not? Yeah, this is Marvel Universe. This is tied right in. This is going to be canon. Right. And, uh, you know, I think they're going to probably try to advance this character to be part of the whole, you know, next generation uh, of, of Marvel heroes. And, and what's really interesting is that they find ways to actually work in some humor here and not in a distasteful way. And, and I think it's a, it's a very fine line given what we're talking about. I and mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, a person who's struggling with, with a mental illness and, uh, you know, and, and some of the situations they put him in are kind of goofy and funny. I think Oscar Isaac has a really great delivery, but as the show I think is developing, you even see this in the first episode, as it's starting to develop, it's getting more serious and more serious. Yeah. And, and I think they're kind of luring you in. Yeah. It's going to get dark. I can tell you that. Negative one to four, real quick. I'm going three waffles. I thought it was pretty good. Okay, Willie Waffle, wafflemovies.com. Thank you, my friend. Folks, we are out of time. We will see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. No, I mean, I'm glad that they're throwing some humor at it, but I got to be honest with you. This is... 
I mean, everybody's like, oh, Bruce Wayne, the Dark Knight, he's so dark and brooding. And he's like, but the, the, from what I gathered and from the, some of the things that I've read about the Moon Knight, oh, this is dark. I mean, this guy is like, like you said, because he doesn't even know himself who he is and these things are happening and it's not just some guy in a cape he's been imbued with some of these mystical i mean it's it gets dark that's what i'm saying no and and, and you know it, it you're, you're starting to see that in the first episode uh it takes an almost an entire episode well it does literally take an entire episode before the moon knight truly reveals himself that that part of his personality and uh, so that's i think that I think that's where things are really going to take that big turn. You know, as we move into episodes two and three and four, uh, as as he starts to put the pieces together, as he starts to you know communicate with these other personalities, which just starts towards the end of the first episode as well. Well, we'll see. Marvel's had a mixed results on their series. Uh, I thought Loki was uh, was amazing. Uh, I thought Falcon and Winter Soldier was meh. Uh, the uh, WandaVision was okay. It was good. Uh, I have not seen the Hawkeye one yet, but you know it's it's kind of mixed results at this point. But we'll we'll see what it looks like. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. All right, my friend. Uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think you're really going to like it. I've actually had a higher opinion of the Marvel series than you. Um, I thought WandaVision was great. Um, I liked Captain America uh, in, the, in the Winter Soldier very, very much. Uh, you know, I, I even liked the Hawkeye series. Well, having not seen the Hawkeye series, and then I watched the Boba Fett series, the Book of Boba Fett, which was good. But, uh, uh, but yeah, really, because only about the last two-thirds of it was really The Mandalorian Season 2.5. Right, exactly. That's it, the only it was, reason it was It was good. really boring until they decided to make it The Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it was. It's The Mandalorian Season 2.5. That's exactly what it is. So, uh, anyway, we'll see what this looks like, but I am excited. We'll, we'll have more to talk about it. Uh, thank you, my friend. Next week, we're going to talk more about 1883. I hope you got through some more of it. We'll, we'll talk about it then, okay? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this week we had a lot of Oscar stuff yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but, yeah. but now we're going to have uh -huh. a little bit more free time yeah. unless Will Smith smacks somebody uh -huh. or gets arrested. Yeah, I'm hearing you. Okay, all right, okay, I believe you. All right, thanks, my friend. I'll talk to you next week. Folks, we'll see you. Have a great weekend. shed our terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show